This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. Today, the Law, law Review looks again at elder abuse. Elder abuse and neglect is estimated to affect approximately 700,000 to 1.2 million elderly people each year, with an estimated annual cost of tens of billions of dollars. So a million elderly people are abused or neglected each year in the United States. Despite all of this risk and the substantial cost to society, it is a problem that often goes unnoticed and unexamined. So today we're fortunate to have back two real experts in helping us understand the law and elder abuse. Joel Bryant is an attorney in the law firm of Green, Bryant, and French in San Diego, and Paul Greenwood is the deputy district attorney in San Diego. Thank you both for returning to the Law Review to discuss elder abuse. In the last program, we discussed that elder abuse may be physical abuse, mental or emotional abuse, but it also may be financial abuse or serious neglect. After the last podcast, a, a friend asked me what financial abuse is and when it is illegal. And again, we, we said, like, forgive the interruption, but we said last time there's a possibility of criminal charges related to any almost any kind of abuse, but there's also the possibility of civil recovery that is typically what we think of as a civil lawsuit. Yes, absolutely. So civil financial abuse is generally taking or retaining real or personal property of an elder for a wrongful use or with intent to defraud. It also includes taking or retaining real or personal property of an elder by use of undue influence. And again, civilly, in the civil lawsuits, we are generally asking for monetary relief, money damages. And are there the possibility, uh, Paul, of, of criminal charges for financial abuse? Yes, and really what financial exploitation from a criminal perspective, it's simply theft from a victim who is aged in California, 65 years of age or older. So the common definition that we look for and we abide by is taking somebody else's assets without their permission with the intent to permanently deprive. And one thing that Joel mentioned, which uh, demarcates the area of civil practice from criminal, is that Joel is, a, is allowed to use and will use effectively the concept of undue influence. Uh, in California, criminal courts don't recognize undue influence as a method by which theft takes place. In other states, such as Oklahoma, it's part of their code, a criminal code, that undue influence is a method by which people steal from elders. So, Joel, what is undue influence? Undue influence is, I think the best definition is the most recent definition, which is excessive persuasion with an unfair result. That sounds sort of vague. It is. It is by necessity. It's somewhat a nebulous concept. Prior to this, and still another definition, is taking advantage of another's weakness of mind. Basically, when you cut through the, the legal definitions, to me, it often manifests itself where someone approaches a, an elder who has dementia of any sort, including Alzheimer's disease, and takes advantage of their vulnerability and obtains real or personal property from them, for example, approaching them and saying, hey, sign this document. I need this for tax purposes. And it turns out it's a document. It's a grant deed or a quick claim deed. So the elder has unwittingly just given ownership to their home. But that's fraud. I mean, that's flat out fraud. 
That is fraud, but in a family setting, I people see. will often the defense says, "Oh, well, that was you know grandma or grandpa so and so wanted to give me this as a gift," um, and even where they tell oh, all their even proving even proving what went on, it gets to be different. right, and so that's why undue influence is very important because at least civilly, the majority of my cases, that's what it involves: someone taking advantage of an elder who trusts them implicitly. And this person uses that trust to their own advantage, to the detriment of the elder. And the elder is often out bank accounts, investment accounts, homes, other uh, real property. I, I remember in the first program, both of you made passing reference to the fact that putting an el elderly person into a stock portfolio that's completely inappropriate for someone of that age and circumstance can have regulatory problems for the person doing that, the, the stockbroker, for example, or stock advisor that's doing that, especially if that person's receiving benefits himself or herself for having putting elderly person in that. So that's sort of another category. There's a there are professional obligations of advisors, whether they're attorneys or physicians or stockbrokers, and the, the breach of those fiduciary obligations to the elderly can be its own form of at least civil uh, case, but it also has a regulatory effect on the advisor or the attorney or the physician who's engaged in inappropriate practice. Right. That is another type and uh, a prevalent type of financial elder abuse. It's the selling of an unsuitable investment or investments uh, to an elder. That can, that can have a crossover to the potential criminal uh, cases because right now I'm looking at a case where an, uh, an elderly widow, um, it looks like she has sold her house under market value to the realtor who actually put the house on the market for her. He himself apparently has now taken title to the property. So number one, you think, well, there must be some regulatory provisions uh, showing conflict of interest in his own profession. But then does it go deeper than that? Can I actually prove whether or not this uh, fella uh, actually set out to permanently deprive her of more money uh, because she could have sold it for a much higher fee? So there's some real complications there from a criminal aspect, which are probably better suited to the civil arena until we have substantial proof. And that's an example of where the fiduciary obligation creates even broader obligations. I mean, if a neighbor had come over and said, I will buy your house, and it was offering less than its value, that might be immoral uh, or taking advantage, maybe even undue influence under the right circumstances, but just in the pure sense. But it's not the same obligation that a real estate agent has because of the fiduciary obligation. Exactly, because you would expect uh, that a realtor particularly has – got well-defined uh, duties and obligations to the seller, in this case, uh, the alleged victim. And uh, so that's the area that we're looking into and investigating to see whether or not, because of a breach of those regulatory regulations, it then transpires, it, it goes into the criminal arena. And when one quick comment, in my experience, um, the regulatory agencies are very, very, very ineffective in uh, addressing either civil elder abuse or even what I've seen criminally. It's that surprises me. So let's take the stockbroker example that I gave. The agencies controlling financial advisors or stockbrokers would be reluctant to take on essentially removing a license or disciplining the professional? In my experience, yes. I think except in the most egregious circumstances. Um, I think I've also experienced this in the real estate setting that Paul's talking about where the mentality is more of a, a protect our own. And so, and the same is true with the governmental agencies in charge of regulating 
nursing homes, yeah. um, the Department of Public Health and Department of Social Services, uh, for reasons of lack of funding, understaffing, what have you, that the punchline is uh, they're totally ineffective in enforcing the regulations designed to protect elders in nursing homes and residential care facilities. So, so that suggests that the point I think you were making at the very beginning of the program that that the civil system, in some ways, is it, 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 a lot of this is just left to this to civil the civil system. Yes, I believe a, a lot of the enforcement of the governmental regulations is left to civil as, as well as criminal. And Paul can speak more to the criminal, but I've seen when people have elder abuse to me, it's if you want anything done, it's either going to happen civilly and or criminally. Interesting. Well, th- we've been talking about f- essentially financial abuse, which is one of the things that was, I think, uh, seemed like a, a vague category. It, it is, but it, it is a very real category, and, and you're suggesting there's a fair amount of legal concern about it uh, developing now, especially on the civil side. The other form of a- abuse, if you will, is really neglect. And we, we mentioned that in passing at the last time, but I wanted to focus a little bit more on neglect. And in two ways, the first one is, can individuals be responsible for neglect, legally responsible for neglect? And can institutions be legally responsible for neglect? I mean, there are two different things. I, I, I think the example we had Last time was of an institution, or or was it an individual? It was you were about to bring an indictment, which I think occurred. That was for an individual who had. Yeah, most of the criminal neglect cases that I prosecute have been for the individuals, uh, but we are hoping in our office to broaden our scope of investigations to really look and examine the structure of nursing homes and board and care homes. And as we do that, then I think we'll be broadening our investigations to say, well, who else may be responsible? Uh, And I think it's not beyond the realms of possibility that one day you could see a prosecution in our office for willful neglect of an elder or dependent adult where we would actually charge the corporation in addition to an uh, individual or the management or the ownership of the uh, facility because Ultimately, um, particularly if you have a whistleblower witness who will give you some inside information about the lack of training, about shutting your eyes to the obvious, then I think uh, an investigation could well lead to more of a corporate uh, responsibility for the criminal behavior of an individual. We, we talked uh, last time. Uh, about the the possibility of of civil liability for institutions who which are responsible for the care of someone where that care is not given as difficult as that maybe for the criminal uh case against an institution as opposed to an individual uh that that Paul was just describing Joel is is there similar difficulty in finding civil liability for uh institutions that don't provide adequate care I think it's easier civilly than criminally um, due in part to a couple of things. The burden of proof criminally is higher and tougher to meet as a result. Also criminally, there's this idea of scienter and intent, which is an issue, and Paul can speak more to that. But I know civilly, um, that's not a big hurdle for us. Um, also, we just need a prepon- not only a preponderance of the evidence, but nine out of 12 jurors as opposed to a unanimous jury. So civilly, um, the problems really are of proof because a lot of what happened in the nursing home that may have led to serious injury or death happened within the confines of that nursing home. And all of the witnesses 
will be generally employees of the defendant. So it's often tough to find out what really happened and why did uh, my client suffer serious injury or in some cases death as a result of the nursing home's neglect. This is going to sound like a very technical question, but uh, if if there is payment from Medicaid or here in California, Medi-Cal, or other government programs, is it possible to have what's known as a False Claim Act? Uh, that's a, a federal law. There are also similar state laws that provide that when you bill the government for, for completely inadequate services, uh, it started as inadequate ammunition, but it now it includes inadequate services. There can be uh, a, a lawsuit either by an individual whistleblower or by the government agency to recover uh, the payments and multiple times the payments, maybe three times the amount of payments. Are there are there uh, that kind of false claims? Yes, and that's a pretty it's a pretty new to the area, but it does happen. I've seen uh, very big settlements and judgments, um, some in California, some in other states, where Medicare came after uh, generally a chain of nursing homes for fraudulent Medicare billing practices. Uh, for example, billing for Medicare services that were not being provided or that were completely unnecessary. So that is something I've really started to see in the last couple of years. Well, that will be, I suspect, a growth area because it is in most of healthcare right now. That's a popular, popular area. Uh, much of the abuse, even the the serious abuse, seems to go unrecognized. I mean, of the approximately a million elderly people a year who are subject to abuse or or serious neglect, very a very small part of that is ever reported, is ever seen. Why is it so unusual? Well, I, I think from my experience, and I've been prosecuting these crimes for now 18 years. When I first started out 18 years ago, that was absolutely uh, what we were faced with, the lack of uh, recognition, the lack of reporting. But what I've also noticed uh, as, as I look at the landscape today is that the public is much more aware of what constitutes elder abuse because there's been a lot more media exposure to uh, cases just for example, since our last podcast, uh, we've had the death of Mickey Rooney, who became about three years ago almost like the poster child for victims of elder abuse. And through his story, a lot more people have become aware that so often the perpetrator of a elder abuse situation couldn't can be a family member. But I think ultimately what causes many of these cases to go unreported, it's not so much the physical abuse cases, because if you end up with a as someone who has been uh, seriously injured with a broken hip or um, lacerations to the face or to the skull, that person ultimately, hopefully, will end up in a uh, urgent care or emergency room, and therefore that case will become soonly enough detected. It's the more subtle forms, such as isolation, such as verbal or mental abuse, uh, and then, of course, the whole myriad of financial exploitation, because the w what we learned soon, uh, very quickly, was that victims of financial exploitation are the last people to report it because they are too embarrassed to do so. So that's why we spent a long, lot of time in the last 18 years uh, getting the word out, um, doing public service announcements to the public, 
defining what we mean by elder abuse, not just crimes in nursing homes, but it covers uh, so many other issues. And bit by bit, the awareness level has increased. So more and more people, uh, neighbors, uh, community members, are doing their job, as well as, of course, the whole class of mandated reporting, which I know we're going to come on to in a few minutes. That, that class of mandated reporters has expanded over the last 18 years. Our guests on Law Review today are Attorney Joel Bryant and Paul Greenwood, the Deputy District Attorney in San Diego, whose expertise, both of your expertise, uh, is in the area of adult abuse and elder abuse. You mentioned, Paul, that we were going to talk about reporting laws. Let's do that. Uh, I suppose people are familiar with the fact that that there are child abuse reporting laws in in all of the states. They vary from one state to another, but but I suspect it's not as well known that there are somewhat similar adult re- uh, or elder abuse reporting statutes. Tell us a- about those. Sure, and, and in fact, it does vary from state to state. There are some states where there are no mandatory reporting laws for elder abuse. It's m- what we call permissive reporting. Uh, in some states, just a minority, everybody is a mandated reporter. And that includes lawyers, too, which is an interesting concept. Um, but in uh, states like California, there are defined classes of professionals who are recognized as mandated reporters. And when I started 18 years ago, uh, that number was small, but it's been expanded. So it's always been medical uh, professionals, uh, from nurses through to surgeons, whoever, uh, paramedics, those kind of individuals who are uh, there in the healthcare industry. But also it includes all care providers in California, whether paid or unpaid. If they are providing care for an elder, they are obligated by law to report suspected uh, elder abuse. It's it's a violation of law not to report it in that what you've just described. Mandatory reporting means you're, you're obligated as a matter of law to report. Reported. That's correct. And in most classifications, the failure to report uh, is, uh, is considered to be a misdemeanor. There are other classifications, though. For example, we had a huge battle trying to get financial institutions and their employees to become mandated reporters. And when I first started out several years ago, that was one of the tasks that I uh, joined in with. And we went to Sacramento on many occasions and the uh, financial institution lobby was very powerful, and, and they defeated it. But what, several what would years... be an example of their reporting obligation? To well, uh, now it is uh, if they have a reasonable suspicion uh, that uh, an elder uh, in this state is being financially exploited, they do have an obligation to report it. That that law has only been in for the last eight or so years. And what what is interesting is how we got that law passed for the financial institutions, because as I say, they had a powerful lobby, was that the violation does not constitute a misdemeanor. It's a fine. Uh, And so uh, it can range from $1,000 to $5,000. Another group that is also mandated reporting, which is an interesting group, clergy. All clergy in California are considered mandated reporters of elder abuse. But what I've also found is that they have a huge resistance to being mandated reporters. Well, why is that? Many clergy uh, do not like that law. Because they, of the concept of a priest-penitent there is There's that relationship between the penitent and themselves, correct, which, in fact, though, is protected under California law. That's, that's uh, considered to be privileged. But it's more the concept of ratting out 
somebody who is connected to their congregation, which could cause upheavals within the family unit. Uh, I, I suppose pastorally they're thinking they want to keep the family unit together. So by picking up the phone and calling the police, they feel is being very divisive. Whereas my take on it is if you don't call the police or the adoptive services, we could end up with a homicide on our plate anyway. Yeah, you would you would think that their concern for the elderly would be, I mean, that must create real conflicts within the clergy when they, I can understand not wanting to rat out another parishioner, as you said, but the, in the meantime, the elderly person is somewhat unprotected. Yes, uh, very much so. And, you know, again, because I mentioned isolation as being a, a key yeah. red flag, that is something that clergy will be the, often the first people to find out because the perpetrator, the first thing they typically do with men and women of faith is prevent that person from going to their place of worship. And we know from human nature that people always sit in the same pew yeah. every every week for, for the same I thought it was 20, just 30 years. You know? <laughs> and so it's, it's an opportunity for a clergy and their staff to spot when one of their elderly parishioners has not attended the worship service for the last three, four, five weeks. And, and I believe it's incumbent upon them then to make an unannounced visit to their parishioner's home. And as part of the training, I always say to them, if you go to the door and knock on the door and say, can I meet with so-and-so, and, -so? and a, a, a strange face says, oh, they're sleeping, they should immediately call for a welfare check from the local law enforcement. It's interesting that particularly where there's a family member involved in the abuse, the ability to isolate someone is probably not that difficult. It's not. Uh, and even if it's somebody from outside of the family, the, the tactic, which I'm sure Joel has seen in civil cases, the, the new friend will come in and poison the mind of the victim by saying, well, your kids don't care about you. All they're waiting for you to do is die. That's all they're interested in is the inheritance. So forget them. In fact, let's not even talk to them for the next six months. So when they phone you, we're just going to tell them you're not available. And that's how the isolation is developed. Do you see that, Joel, in civil cases? Right. We see it a lot. And it exactly happens in that way, which is the uh, the bad actor comes into contact with the elder and drives a wedge between the elder and their family. And it's often simply by telling them, um, oh, your family wants to put you in a nursing home. I really care for you. They only care about your money. And when you take uh, an elder, particularly with some dementia, they don't have the same judgment they did 10 years, 20 years, 30 years before. And so they're, such, they're a much easier mark. They don't have the same judgment. Uh, whereas 10, 20 years earlier, they would have said, get out of my house. What are you talking about? My family loves me. They care for me. No one's going to be putting me in a nursing home. They're more easily brainwashed, really, if you want to look at it in that way. And unfortunately, that's, that's true for all of us. Uh, we just all age at a different pace in a different manner. But at some point, we're all more easily manipulated, more easily brainwashed. And unfortunately, there's opportunists out there ready to strike uh, with elders and drive that wedge between the family and the elder. And here's the problem, Steve. Uh, I, I said all the time through natural behavior of family members. Here we are. We're very fortunate to live and work in San Diego. But a lot of adult children have not been able to find the ability to stay in San Diego. So they have to go and, and find a job somewhere else. So they live maybe 150, maybe even 500,000 miles away. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't love their parents anymore, but they've abandoned their responsibility to be involved in their parents' life. 
And, and I always look at the, it's coming up in a couple of weeks, Mother's Day, as a significant day in the life of the elder abuse calendar. How many adult children make the effort to travel 100, 500,000 miles to be with their mother on that very special day? And the trouble is that the suspects, they're very good at uh, recognizing adult children who have become lazy with their parents, who've abandoned this responsibility they think they should have. And so they move in there. And of course, on Mother's Day, it's the suspect who's celebrating Mother's Day with the victim and not the children. So that when I get to hear about the case and the adult child is calling me from Illinois or somewhere else, I say, when was the last time you visited with your with your mother? And, and there's a silence on the other end of the phone. I say, where were you on Mother's Day? Well, I'm busy. I, I got a job. I can't afford to come out. And that's what the suspect really capitalizes on. Maybe this is a, a good time to, to talk about, uh, again, about some of the warning signs that should alert family members or friends that there's something bad going on and, and what to do if you just think that there could be. I mean, you don't know, but you, you mentioned no, you can't see the per- going to the door. A strange, the uh, a clergy going to the door say, "No, you can't uh, see the person who's sleeping," and that happens maybe a couple times. So, what what are some of the other warning signs? Secondly, as it relates to a warning sign, what do you do if if you see that warning sign? Well, I always say to people, well, number one, uh, mandated reporters. I always say. Uh, make sure you get the training, make sure you understand what the latest is going on with scams, exploitation, the dynamics, so that they actually are beginning to become more aware of the finer points uh, that, that we see all the time and, and follow through with their obligations. I always remind mandated reporters that uh, this is a personal obligation. You mustn't, and a lot of people do this, they pass it up the chain. Uh, to their command, oh. which is totally in violation of the mandated reporting. It's well, let a me personal. just go over what you just said. So, so if you're in an instit- working in an institution, like a bank, a, a bank, and and you notice something that's highly suspicious, you mention it to a supervisor, which makes perfect sense. But that has not, in the meantime, relieved you of all obligation to report it yourself. No, you have a personal responsibility because you've seen it, you've made that determination uh, that there's reasonable suspicion. You have that obligation to make that phone call and and submit that form. Now, the form, the the phone call would be to Adult Protective Services and or to law, local law enforcement. But the problem is with a lot of institutions, the employee will pass it on to a supervisor. The supervisor will call somebody from out of state, corporate office, and by the time it trickles back down, seven fifteen days could have passed. So that's part of the thing. The um, the other part that I wanted to share is the ordinary person in the street. Go with your gut feeling. If you think that a neighbor of yours um, may be the subject of some form of exploitation or, or neglect or, or even physical abuse or mental abuse, if your gut is telling you that, then go with your gut and make that call. The beauty is if you are not a mandated reporter, you can make that call anonymously. And I, I know from personal experience with Adult Protective Services, they are very, very good about protecting the anonymity uh, of the person who makes that call. And, and let the professionals then figure out and worry about whether or not there, there is a victim. Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. What do they do with that information? Well, they, got, they have an anonymous call. I think my neighbor down the street may be being abused. And they will take that seriously. They will, I know in, from San Diego, uh, they will open up a case file. They will assign a social worker, a caseworker, and they try within 48 to 72 hours. It doesn't always happen, but they try within that, that time period to actually make a physical visit to the address. 
unannounced uh, and see what's going on. If, if you're worried that by doing that, you're going to put the neighbor at risk for being moved out of his or her home and in, into an institution, uh, how, how do you think that through? I mean, that would, I, if, I mean, if I had a neighbor who I knew was scared to death of having to move out of, out of her home, I would, I'd have to think twice, I think, about the call. And I would urge you, no, don't think twice. Go with your gut and let others worry about that uh, conflict in your mind. Because once the professionals get involved, the social worker, the discharge planner from the hospital, uh, maybe they can bring in a professional elder law attorney uh, like Joel here to help with the whole plan for this older person. Maybe in fact, a nursing home is the best place for them. Who knows? Even though they don't want to go there, maybe, just maybe, that is the appropriate setting that, that they should be in. Or at least get in a reputable caregiver agency that can take care of them. So so there should be no hesitancy, I, I hope, on the part of the uh, neighbor to make that call. And I would just say, as to the reporting, Adult Protective Services, there are a number of legitimate financial elder abuse cases that I see that they were involved in and uh, for whatever reason uh, were unable to do anything. And so I raise that because, again, I could count on a recent case I'm looking at where uh, a woman roughly 50, 60 years younger than the man took $2.5 million uh, from this man who I believe has dementia and is a very easy mark, very vulnerable. And I know Adult Protective Services looked at that um, it doesn't appear they did anything. It's not. I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying there are many instances of financial elder abuse where, in, in view of the guidelines which APS has to follow, they can't do adult anything. Adult protective services. Yes, yeah. adult protective services. So I would say to the listeners, if you report it, which I totally agree with Paul, you should absolutely do so. But don't be discouraged if adult protective services comes back to you and says, sorry, we're closing our file, or sorry, there's nothing we can do. Don't give up then. I would then contact an experienced elder law litigation attorney and have him or her take a closer look at this case and see if there's anything that can be done to remedy that problem in a civil uh, civil court. Well, if our listeners should have a question that they want to direct to either of you, uh, would you give us the best way for them to contact you? Sure, I have no problem giving out my number, and I don't have any secretary that answers the phone for me. I pick up the phone. If I'm there, <laughs> if I'm not in court, I pick up the phone. Unlike my civil counterpart here, who, who has, has a, a staff of several thousand. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so my direct number is uh, 619-531-3464. And my number is 619-239-7900, and I'm at extension 113. So the first uh, number you heard was for Paul Greenwood, the deputy district attorney in San Diego, and the second for Joel Bryant in the law firm of Green, Bryant, and French in San Diego. To both of you, thank you again for uh, joining us. This is is at once an extremely disturbing topic. The thought of it, as you say, on the, the cusp of Mother's Day uh, maybe makes it even emotionally uh, more difficult, but... Uh, but it, it's also hopeful in the sense that people of goodwill who are paying attention to what's going on can make a real difference in the lives of uh, a million wonderful people in the United States who, uh, who probably each, each year are uh, suffering. So the, the views expressed on Law Review are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of California Western School of Law. Uh, 
Thanks to both of you. Thanks also to our producer, Jin Hee Park. We invite all of our listeners to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. We enjoy hearing from you, so send us a message that you can leave on lawreview.podbean.com. Until next time, this is Steve Smith, and the Law Review stands adjourned.